Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. In this edition, I talk to actuary Hilary Salt about the decline of the professions. We discuss how the resignation of FIFA boss Sepp Blatter came to be the big political issue of the week. And education blogger John Brunskill talks about the challenges of being a primary school teacher and how we can bring primary education to life. But first, news. And I'm here with some colleagues from the Institute of Ideas office, Jeff Kidder and David Bowden. And surprisingly, perhaps the biggest story in the news in the UK over the past few days has been the re-election and then resignation of the head of a sporting organisation. What do we think about Sepp Blatter? Well, I think like most football fans, it's a delight to see the back of Sepp Blatter, who has obviously become a byword for a lot of the issues around FIFA and, and governance, the, you know, particularly the very questionable decision to award the World Cup to Qatar, where there was a, a great sense of, at first a kind of inspiring, yes, we, we can do it, we can move the World Cup to Qatar. And then somebody pointed out that Qatar could get very hot in the summer, so they'd have to move it to winter. And then you had a sort of increasing sense that maybe the process by which the tournament was awarded was perhaps not done for the greatest of sporting Reasons that there is obviously something not right going on, and there's a general kind of antipathy to what has gone on around FIFA and Set Blatter. So I was pleased to see the the back of him, but at the same time, a kind of great sense that there wasn't about to be a, a great sea change going on in the world of football. What brought to mind slightly was the the recent case of Lutfer Rahman in Tower Hamlets, who was a kind of politician who had obviously been up to some dodgy dealings himself and was gotten rid of and it was good to see the back of him but at the same time there wasn't a kind of great sense that it had been done through the most agreeable methods. Yeah, Jeff? Well it's certainly the case that Sepp Blatter has been portrayed and he acts as a classic Bond villain which is uh, how many people see him and the contrast between him uh, as a loathsome person and his very dubious organisation which he has run for many years and the heroic figure as it's presented of Loretta Lynch who has miraculously become one of the most popular people in the United Kingdom almost overnight. So who's Loretta Uh, Loretta Loretta Lynch? Lynch is the American uh, US Attorney General who is spearheading the investigations into FIFA. She seems to have undermined Blatter in a couple of days what the rest of the sporting world and European politicians and others have been unable to do in decades. And it's obviously ironic because association football not being the main sport in the United States, and it still isn't, although it's much more popular uh, than it has been before. But I do think Rob's initial point is still very important. This is a sporting organisation. Football is a game, very beautiful game, but it is just a sport. And the fact that the running of a sporting organisation such as FIFA has become the major news in, across the world, especially in Western Europe and the UK, but across the world, does say something rather peculiar about public debate and society in our, in our contemporary world. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's... Some of that's not surprising, given that football has such a genuinely global reach. But I think what's fascinating is it has been used as, as almost as a byword for all of the you know, perceived problems of today, that there's, there's this sort of shady organization there's accusations of corporate malfeasance there's corruption that's going on particularly with lots of elements of 
people talking about the corruption of of developing world um, countries, and that you know, Blatter did build a very very strong base outside of of Europe and of the kind of traditional Western nations. And there is a sort of slight sense of the the you know the U.S. prosecutors coming in and being able to take down a kind of bad corporate giant. You have Prince William and Greg Dyke. Um, in in Britain, kind of grandstanding, almost kind of sort of taking this sort of sense of now it's a kind of bit of English fair play coming in here, and that great sense that Britain was uh, or England was cheated out of getting a World Cup in this one is almost a kind of a sort of sense of people being able to use this to show that they're cleaning up perceived issues around um, corporate greed without really tackling anything at all it's it is just a sporting organization it is actually fairly low level but it's striking that it's been used first of all by the u.s who is not traditionally a nation associated first and foremost with soccer as they keep on calling it this is an investigation into into soccer corruption and that you have the kind of a lot of elites in europe who are taking up this issue and they're not discussing perhaps bigger questions of global politics yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of interesting nuances to the whole thing as well. So it, uh, the way it's been presented is that Sepp Blatter has kind of bought his way to the top of FIFA and and, and stayed there by you know, dishing out cash left, right and centre. But actually, FIFA pre his predecessor, the Brazilian Joe Havalange, was widely regarded as a kind of like imperial club where run by Europe um, and very much so by the British, actually. And you know Stanley Rouse, who was the um, president of FIFA until 1974, you know, but basically, you know, running it as yeah, you know, in a very sort of we know best kind of attitude. And there's a, there's a lot of that coming through now in um, the the way it's been discussed now. It's just like you know, why do all these little countries get so much say in FIFA? People like Greg Dyke and Prince William should clearly know far more about the the topic, apparently, and therefore you know, are, are the clean hands to clean up world football and basically. No, none of these small countries should you know, have the ambition to to host the World Cup or whatever. And Blatter and his, his predecessor basically appealed to Latin American, Asian, and African countries and said, "Well, you know, it doesn't have to be like that, and you know, we can you know dish out the spoils a bit more fairly and uh, uh, create a bit more development in football." So the, the, there's under his watch probably quite a few good things have happened. Unfo- you know, unfortunately, it's also some very very dubious things have happened as well. And the Qatar World Cup is. Clearly, the most uh, sort of extravagant example of of how things have been carved up and paid for to the detriment of the interests of the sport. So, I'm probably quite happy to see the back of Sepp Blatter as well. But at the same time, the underlying circumstances in FIFA suggest that probably not not that much is going to change in terms of you know the way that any international body like FIFA runs. Yeah, and it's also interesting as well that people were talking about Russia and Qatar in the same breath here. So, I mean, Qatar obviously stands out as a certain you know, incident that suggests perhaps some kind of dodgy dealings. Where people were saying, well, also, look, Russia got the World Cup. And you kind of think, well, there's, there's probably more sporting justifications for Russia to get it, for example, right? One of the reasons why Russia has been in target of this example is that there's a very anti-Russian sentiment that you know at the moment this it's an easy way to sort of display look there's lots of corruption going on russia have benefited from it that's a very handy position to operate today which isn't to say that you know i think everything is run perfectly smoothly within fifa but it is clearly being targeted as a great 
you know, political football in this sense. Yeah. How dare they give the World Cup to Russia rather than to Europe? You know, who knew, who knows how things are properly done at the moment? I think that seems a really striking undertone to the whole conversation. Yeah, this is, on the one hand, you have numerous politicians in the UK getting involved. Andy Burnham, the Labour leadership campaigner, make, he, nailing his colours to the mast as being the one who wants to have a go at Russia. Other people just want to go in and have a go at Sepp Blatter. Uh, politicians in all kinds of countries are doing that. There are accusations that the FBI is very keen to pursue this because it's a clear good and evil situation. Many other much more complicated things, issues are being uh, left behind and ignored uh, in the process. So I think that's a disturbing thing. The other thing is, I don't know what will happen at the end of the process. I mean, Blatter has said he's going to step down at Christmas or at the end of the year, beginning of next year, that then have a smooth transition. I mean, who knows quite what's going to happen in those practical terms. But more importantly, it's not, it isn't a black and white situation within its own terms. Historically in football, there has been a conflict between the UK in particular and other parts of the world, which ended in Havelange's election in 1974. And that's always been used by Blatter and Havelange to get what were known then as the third world nations against the powerful Western European nations. And those conflicts and tensions haven't gone away. The points made that the International Olympic Committee had a process, cleaned up its act, but they've never had the Olympics in Africa, whereas the World Cup has been to Africa. So there's all these wider points and tensions between nations. And so there isn't an obvious solution of how this is going to end. And the fact that at the end of the day, this should be a sporting organisation which organises football. That's what it should do. Rather than the fact that the moral state of the world is presented as it's reflected in the state of FIFA. And if FIFA's corrupt, the whole world's corrupted. And everything is being loaded onto it far more than just the running of what, what is an important, but at the end of the day, just a, a, a sport. And so how this will end, a particular policy solutions, isn't something that I could sit here and say, A, B, C, this is what should happen now. It's important to follow developments and comment on them, but it's a very fluid process and I don't know where it will end. And on that note, I think that yes, this this will run and run and it will be a honeypot for all sorts of different agendas and I'm sure we'll come back to it on this podcast at some point in the future. But until then, Jeff and Dave, thanks very much. One trend that has been regularly discussed at the Battle of Ideas over the past few years has been the ever-increasing intervention of government into our private lives. But it's not just our lifestyles that are more regulated than ever before. In all walks of life, the judgment of individuals has been undermined by the diktats of bureaucrats. Another area beset by increasing interference is the role of professionals. In teaching, medicine, the law and a variety of other fields, professionals who once enjoyed considerable autonomy to use their training and experience are now having to keep one eye on the rule book. I'm joined by Hilary Salt, an actuary and founder of First Actuarial, who is producing a session at this year's Battle of Ideas on this decline of professional responsibility. So Hilary, what inspired you to organise this debate? Is it something you've experienced in your own job? Yes, well, well, I advise pension scheme trustees on, on funding of their pension schemes and in law we're given a very wide remit as to how we might give that advice. But we've found ourselves, and actually we've encouraged ourselves to be more and more constrained by things like the pensions regulator, by codes of conduct. So our, our advice moves from being, this is what I think you should do, to this is what the regulator would expect you to do. 
And, and that has real repercussions on the ability in pensions of employers to run pension schemes. And it's part of the reason why we've seen the widespread closure of good defined benefit pension schemes over the past decade. But I think I had a more, I also had a kind of more positive spur to organising the debate. So that last year, Francis Maud, who was then the Minister for the Cabinet Office, wrote an article in the RSA Journal about how it was important to kind of remove the shackles from civil servants and allow them to use their professional autonomy to deliver services better. And that seemed to be a really positive thing for uh, Francis Maud to be saying. So that gave me some encouragement. Uh, unfortunately, a few weeks later, he then introduced a new code of conduct on civil servants, uh, requiring them not to speak to the press before clearing anything with, with a minister. So there's lots of inconsistencies around this, and there's clearly a lot of confusion. So we've talked about pensions and the civil service to some extent, but how does this play out in, in other professions? It's kind of hard to find professions where, where this kind of thing isn't happening. So if you think about, for example, teachers, their room for professional judgment in the classroom is is being constrained, in lesson planning is being constrained. All that is now negotiated through things like the national curriculum, inspectors and outside experts. Doctors and, and medics more widely obviously have their autonomy constrained by NICE, by their professional bodies, by lawyers protecting the uh, hospital from uh, uh, patients taking legal cases against them. But I think it's important to notice it's not just a, a public service issue. In the private sector as well, there are lots of areas where people can't move for codes of conduct. Perhaps the most obvious one at the moment is journalists, who, who are clearly massively constrained in what they, they can and can't do now. Accountants have to negotiate all kinds of forms of recommended practice notes. Engineers need to satisfy lots of requirements that are wholly non-engineering in their background. So you know, all those things really stop people doing the job that they as a professional are meant to be doing. Let me take the contrarian view here for a moment. There's an old joke, what's the difference between God and a hospital consultant? God doesn't think he's a consultant. And doctors aren't the only profession that have been accused of arrogance. So isn't it about time that professionals were brought down a peg or two? Yeah, well, there, I think there is a tension here. Uh, and clearly we don't want bridges that fall down or, or, or pension schemes that fail. But if all professionals do is to follow codes of conduct and, and regulatory requirements, it actually undermines their professional responsibility because they can just shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, not me, Gov, I just followed the rules, I did what the uh, regulator requires me to. And it, it undermines professionals' ability to, to come up with innovative solutions or good advice to people that they're providing a service to. I think it's a real myth that the more codes of conduct you have, the more you can trust professionals. In fact, it just undermines that level of trust. And if you think about it, when you are a, a patient being treated by a doctor, you might think that as a patient you want to be involved in your care pathway and all those kind of things. But actually, that's just a bit like students thinking that they want teachers to teach easy lessons. In reality, the doctor has got a lot more experience and qualifications, and they actually do know better than you. And I think we need to, we need to trust professionals more, but professionals also need to trust themselves more. One of the things you, you talked about in pitching the session for, for this year's battle was this distinction to be made between the outside expert consultant who maybe comes in and does a report on you know, the, the profession or something and the, the, the professionals who actually work there in the long term. So can you explain a bit more about that? This is something I find really interesting and I, I don't really have a, a full explanation for it. But if you think about education, for example, at the same time that government is undermining the professional autonomy of teachers to teach, they are inviting 
experts to teach uh, teachers how to uh, teach kids to read. So it's really weird because they're exactly the same people are invited in as outside, outside experts as the professionals. They are the professionals themselves. They're the great and good of that particular pro- uh, profession. And it's really puzzling to understand why there's an, there's an idea that ex- outside experts are good and professionals are bad. Uh, and I've kind of tried to explain this in terms of experts being people who are parachuted in. They take no long-term responsibility for the decisions they make. They look at things in a very narrow basis and they say there's a right and wrong answer. Whereas I would say in, in the real world, meanwhile I'm back in the real world, uh, professionals are balancing a whole wide range of interests that people are trying to negotiate. They are thinking about things for the long term and they will carry the can long term for the, the, the advice that they give. And I think that's a, an important distinction, but that's exactly one of the things I think we need to be debating at the Battle of Ideas. Why exactly is there that different view of professionals and experts? And you mentioned something else a little bit earlier on about professionals seeking this, which I think is very interesting, is that the professionals or their representatives often welcome the clarity of having guidelines and regulations from governments. So so why are the professionals inviting the regulators in that have professionals perhaps stopped believing in themselves? I, I think that's right. In my profession, we often rail against the restrictions that the regulator imposes or the internal compliance teams that we have impose on the limits to to our professional autonomy. But in reality, we have as a profession, certainly post-equitable life, uh, equitable life is kind of our mid-staffs moment. Can you explain just briefly what happened with equitable life? So uh, equitable life, there was a big court case uh, to decide whether or not the actuarial advice that had been given within the insurance company was correct. The judgment made was effectively very critical of the uh, actors who had been involved. don't necessarily agree with the judgment as it happens, uh, but that is, is what happened. And there was a real crisis of confidence in our profession after that. We had a whole big review of the profession. We've invited huge numbers of lay people in to oversee us, to discipline us. And actually, to me, that undermines the whole meaning of a profession. A profession runs itself, has professional autonomy, disciplines its own members. And our lack of confidence in ourselves is really clear in the way that we have actually invited lay people in, as well as regulators, to to constrain the decisions that we can make. Those are all issues that, that really undermine the resilience of professionals. You know, I think the more that you uh, constrain professionals, uh, the, the autonomy of professionals, the more that you undermine their ability to be resilient, to cope with things that are difficult, to give advice in difficult situations, because, you know, they haven't got a checklist for that, so they don't really know uh, how to deal with something that's, that's out of the ordinary. And that, I think, is important, not just for professionals. You know, you might say, well, that makes a professional's job a bit worse, but you know, hey, that's that's life. But actually, I think it's really important for society as a whole because what you do is you t- you uh, get to a position where professionals would rather make no decision than make the wrong decision, and that constrains society. Uh, you get to a, a, a situation where professionals can only work with a code of conduct, with a regulator telling them what to do, and that does mean that we as a society take less risks uh, you know, a, 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 a society that's governed by codes of conduct is one that is always trying to batten down risk and stifle innovation. And that's really important for 
pushing society forward and that's really one of the reasons I think we need to debate this at the Battle of Ideas. Yeah well that's a session that I'm certainly looking forward to very much myself. It's one of the more intriguing sessions at this year's Battle of Ideas Uh, so thanks very much for coming in Hilary Salt. Thank you. Being a primary school teacher is easy. It's basically just glorified babysitting. Of course you need to learn how to deliver phonics in both a discreet and contextual manner but apart from that it's easy. Oh, and obviously you also need to understand how to help children conceptualise mathematical operations, moving them from manipulatives to pictorial and ultimately formal representations. And then I suppose you need to know how to break down the implicit components of dozens of writing styles and explicate these to young children. But that's pretty much it. Oh, and French. You also need to know French and how to read, perform and analyse music. So writes teacher John Brunskill in a recent article titled Why We Need Subject Specialists in Primary. It's a far cry from the usual notion that primary school is really just a preparation for secondary school. And if your pupils get to the age of 11 with the basic ability to read, write and add up, that's all we could reasonably hope for. So we thought we'd ask John to come in to talk about primary school teaching today. So first a little bit about yourself. How long have you been in teaching and why did you choose to go into primary teaching? Well, I've only been teaching for a few years, which was a really interesting time to enter education because obviously that's the peak of huge reforms that have been going on for the last five years. A lot of those reforms are about the driving up of standards. So it was interesting to train at that point with no real ideology or opinion either way on, on that whole agenda. And although there was obviously a huge backlash against Michael Gove and, and against the swathing reforms in education, I actually thought, do you know what, I agree with this idea, I, I agree with this idea, whether it's workable or not, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I was really interested in primary education just because I find conversations with children much more interesting than conversations with adults. Yeah. So I'd, my degree was philosophy and, right. and those questions, those sort of uh, really curious, inquisitive questions, I, I find that children tend to be much better asking of those than than adults so I I really love my job because I get to go into school every day and uh, just have wonderfully enlightening and hilarious conversations. (laughs) Has it always been the case that primary teachers have been expected to do the range of subjects like you sort of mentioned in that quote from your article earlier on? There's this idea that in, in primary we, I was once told in primary we don't teach subjects we teach children and I said that to a friend of mine during a debate and I said, oh, well, look, we don't teach children. We don't teach subjects where we teach children. Uh, to which he replied, well, of course you're teaching children, but what are you teaching them? And I thought that, that was quite an interesting way to put it. And that started me thinking about this whole subject specialism thing. I mean, historically, I, th- I think up until 1944, the education went up to about 14, and the whole idea of it was just the three R's. And to an extent, I still agree that there's a, there's a premise that they should those should be the most important things that we do in school, just because you can't participate in, in democracy unless you're literate and numerate. So they absolutely should be the most important things, being able to read and write. But I'm not sure that jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none model in primary schools is is necessarily needed anymore, especially towards the the top of the primary school. Yeah, I mean, I I was thinking when reading your article, it's it's 36 years since I was in a primary school classroom. My first experiences of Shakespeare were at primary school. We even had a classics teacher um, who came in part-time once a week. So it was, you know, 
thinking back, yeah, actually, you know, we did actually do quite a broad range of, of stuff. And, and so it's interesting because I, I think a lot of people would say, well, teaching French or music or computing to children that are so young is a waste of time at such an early age. Clearly, you don't agree. Why? I'm reading a book at the moment called Curious, and it distinguishes between epistemic curiosity and diversive curiosity. Diversive curiosity is that sort of fleeting curiosity that we all have, which is really easily satiated. We just go and think, oh, I want something new and shiny, and then I get bored with it because it gets hard work. And I think that young children are really good at this. They, they're really curious about, about the world. The epistemic curiosity is the more difficult bit. That's the bit that, that makes you stick at something once you've got beyond that superficial interest. And to be able to, to get into that epistemic curiosity, to tap into that, which we should absolutely inculcate in children, the person who is passing on that knowledge, passing on that information, themselves needs to have that depth of knowledge. So I think that it absolutely is possible. We know that it's possible because we hear stories all the time of, of young prodigies who become absolute masters in, in, on the piano or who, who build websites that, at the age of nine or ten and become millionaires in their early teenage years. They're, they're able to do this because they've had somebody who's been there to, to guide them. So the, the question is, I suppose, can we give that to, to everybody in, in primary school? Now, I'm looking at my primary school and that we have subject specialists who come in to deliver the music the ICT and the PE teaching and the standard of, uh, the standard of teaching that they deliver is far beyond anything that I could give those children just because those that's what they do all day every day they just teach music and they know music inside out their vocabulary is immense so they're dropping that in all the time with the children they know how to teach somebody how to hit a tennis ball perfectly because they know how to do it perfectly so that enables them to break it down to its absolute components so I think it, it is possible. It's true that teaching it superficially, I think, is probably pointless. If, if you've got somebody who speaks no French at all, trying to teach children how to speak French, showing them videos on the Internet, maybe that isn't the best model. Maybe that's not the best way that we can spend time with kids. But I think it will be possible for us to provide that standard of education for all children in primary. So how, how do we do it? So do we follow the model you've just described of specialists coming in or do we completely reorganise primary schools like mini secondary schools with different teachers for different lessons or do we need to look at changing teacher training? Yeah, so so all of these are difficult and there's, there's no easy answer to any of these. I should put in a small caveat because a, a lot of what a lot of the good work that happens at primary school is predicated on the relationships that teachers have with their children and the the trouble with what I've been talking about is every time you introduce a new adult you start to dilute that relationship that they have with the children and that relationship is why you can get so much good work done and especially earlier on in the school I, I wouldn't advocate lots of different adults in key stage one for instance when children are just getting used to leaving their their family unit so what ages is that key stage one is reception year, year one and year two so up to age seven and right. then key stage two we have seven to eleven okay. and i absolutely believe that by by upper key stage two so year five and six children are ready to be introduced to different adults and, and that's probably desirable because they're about to go into secondary where they will have a different adult for every single subject that they're taught more or less so in one sense it's part of the transition for that but also it means that if you're up a key stage two teacher and you're teaching English 
and that's all you do. You can become much more of a master of that subject. You're going to get to know the misconceptions that kids have with that subject. You're going to, uh, one example, for instance, spelling, punctuation and grammar. Now, I was never taught spelling, punctuation and grammar explicitly at school. I think there's a whole cohort of people who weren't because it just didn't get taught for about 30 years. But now it is. So I've had to learn from scratch what a subordinate clause is and what a modal verb is and how to then teach these to kids. Do schools have time to give teachers in terms of time to say you can go off and you can and you can learn this? To teach that well, you really need to know inside out yourself so you can teach the kids tricks. If you're confused learning it, then what chance do your kids stand? So I think it's, it's not as clear cut as we just need to reorganise all primary schools. I think gradually as we get up towards the, the end of primary school and we should be moving more towards subject specialists rather than being a, a generalist. It would give teachers a real professional identity and all of their training can then be directed towards that. So they're getting the depth of, of knowledge and understanding in that particular subject. There was some research done by Rob Coe from Durham University and, and they were looking at what makes quality teaching and they identified teachers' subject knowledge as, as one of the main indicators of great results for children. So there's some evidence to, to back up this idea that you need to be a subject specialist to be able to get across that knowledge, which sounds quite obvious when you think about it. In terms of teacher training, the way that I would think might work is to to take to borrow the sort of um, medical model so the idea is that when you're training to be a doctor you go through the basics over your first sort of four years you go and do placements where you learn the basics of interacting with patients and and seeing lots of different areas and then you specialize and all of your training is then towards that particular specialism why couldn't we do that in primary education you your initial teacher training could be based on things like behaviour management, planning, uh, assessment, uh, questioning in lessons. These are the building blocks of every great lesson. But then after that, you could start to move towards a subject knowledge of it. And now I'm going to learn maths and I'm going to get really great at covering this maths curriculum so that when I deliver it, I'm an absolute master of that subject and I know I'm never going to be stumped by a child's question. It's uh, just very interesting because there's not a lot of discussion in the public realm about primary teaching, so um, that's that's been great to talk to you. If you want to read more of John's thoughts on teaching, uh, you should check out the blog he runs, which is pedfed.wordpress.com. Thank you very much for coming in, John Brunskill. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts or subscribe to them, visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.